Hi, everyone. Welcome to the April 8th, 2022 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right to it. The city of Aurora fired police chief Vanessa Wilson this week. City manager Jim Twombly said that Wilson prioritized outside relations over internal management. Supporters of Wilson, including several lawmakers, were disappointed, saying Wilson improved strained relations in the community. Meanwhile, Brian Moss at CBS4 reported that an independent consultant review showed thousands of back backlogged Aurora police reports that have not been entered into a record records-keeping system. Paula Greeson, an attorney for Chief Wilson, said the consultant review was, quote, another attempt by the city to smear Chief Wilson and give a distorted view of the facts. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, Aurora has uh, yet to fail to come up with something that is top uh, headline for this program. Uh, I don't know if I saw this one coming, but it's it's a big deal in a city that has dealt with a whole lot of issues and turmoil over the last two years. What did you think of what we saw coming out of this firing this week? Well, when her attorney says we haven't seen the facts, that's clear. There are so many facts we do not know. It was also odd that there was a leak that she was going to resign that was a couple weeks ago, and she said she had no intention. So how much of that was like a Douglas County Board of Education get rid of the superintendent move? Uh, it sounded like it was taken from their playbook. She entered into an impossible situation. I mean, she was coming in. It wasn't just the Elijah McClain case. It was the drunk guy passed out in the middle of the day in his squad car in the middle of the street. Aurora police clearly had issues with some bad apples. What we don't know is how many bad apples there were. She did take on, you saw that she was firing people who would normally have been left in place for a long time, maybe with a slap, maybe with nothing. So she was taking care of internal things. She was certainly taking care of a lot of external issues, which were... No, no trust in the Aurora Police Department from minority communities in Aurora. She's been taking that on. She's been working with the AG because the AG's office now is overseeing the police department in a lot of ways. Uh, but maybe, maybe she really did not have the loyalty and trust of her officers. It's hard to know. They've lost a lot. So over the next few months, I think we'll hear a lot more, and we'll probably see some lawsuits. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, Aurora is an enormous city, a lot of people, big police force. This is not an easy job, and they're facing a lot of turmoil. So uh, while a city manager or city council can do whatever they want, they can fire a police chief that is within their rights, I don't know if they've painted a great picture for whomever they're going to try to tap to replace Chief Wilson. What did you take away from what we learned this week? Well, any high-end, top of the food apex of the control government executive you often has to play two roles you're the outside person the face of the organization to the public and meeting with them and giving speeches and then you're also responsible for the internal management of the organization she was obviously very good at one and not good at all at the other and that was the problem the the thing that brian moss reported on was an audit by pri management group which found that there were 2,500 case reports that hadn't been transcribed and entered into the system so that investigations could begin. Now, other reports say it's maybe it's down to 1,250 or something like that, but as the city manager said, there shouldn't be more than 50 in that because that gap between you know 50 cases we got to process versus well over 1,000 is cases that are going cold. It means they're not being investigated. It means you, you've got 
people who are doing violent assaults, assaults up 22% in Aurora over the last year. Very serious, aggravated, interpersonal felonies going cold because they don't get investigated because the department can't process them in time. That's, you know, she didn't necessarily create that problem, but as the chief of police, that was her responsibility to fix that. And I think that what uh, City Manager Twombly said, that was emblematic of a lot of her problems. Very good on the outside, uh, very ineffective on the inside. You have to have somebody with both. And so I hope the next person Aurora hires will have a demonstrated record of management success in law enforcement. Eric Sonneman, longtime political consult, uh, political analyst here at PBS 12, also a uh, columnist with uh, all the Gazette newspapers, Colorado politics. Uh, Eric, looking at this politically, uh, Aurora is um, the most diverse city in the state, um, a city council that the mayor breaks the tie, but it's not exactly one way or the other. It's, it's, it's balanced. It tilts conservative if they have to. And a city facing a lot of growth and issues. They just passed a, an urban camping ban. So whomever the next police chief is going to be, uh, they are walking into a difficult situation at best. Where do you think their priorities will be in trying to find that ideal balance, but probably needing to lean one side or the other? Well, I think David actually nailed this one in terms of uh, Vanessa Williams, the former chief strengths, and also her weaknesses. Whoever is appointed to this job after, I presume, some search process, you're not sure whether you should offer them congratulations or condolences because it is a very heavy lift and a tough gig. Uh, there are so many agendas out there and so uh, so many masters that have to be served and, and so many agendas that have to be tackled. Uh, yes, the community outreach and quite frankly being a reformer, and I believe Vanessa Williams was something of a reformer, is one essential part. Now that Aurora's entered into that consent degree, decree and Phil Weiser, the attorney general, is basically the overseer of that police department, you know, maybe Weiser takes on some of that role and the new chief can be somewhat more the administrator. There's one factor that hadn't been touched on here, but it relates to what David was talking about, which is the whole morale of the police department, which has sunk to rather low levels and is largely a function both of the tone being set at the top and of issues like the backlog that Brian Moss uh, exposed, uh, backlog of cases entered into the system, etc. So this thing is not easy. It is not going to get fixed overnight. I think Vanessa Williams was probably, Wilson, Wilson excuse me, was probably the right person at a very difficult era for that department, but I'm not sure if she was the right person forever. Uh, and good luck to them in finding that person. Marianne Goodland joins us, chief legislative reporter for Colorado Politics. It's great to have you here, Marianne. Um, it shows, I think, some of uh, Aurora's influence in state politics that you saw state lawmakers coming out about, in almost any other city, a municipal uh, decision. Will that impact how Aurora moves forward? That's a very good question, and and I think they certainly want to have some input on where the city of Aurora goes next. It's it's an interesting situation because I think it sends the firing sends a message about their views not only on how Wilson was conducting things but on reform itself. And while the um, the firing doesn't change or negate the agreement between the the city and the attorney general's office. 
I think it's going to raise some real questions in the black and, and minority community in Aurora about just how serious they are about about addressing the problems in the in the police department. And I think you're going to hear a lot more from lawmakers if things don't go in a manner that that they uh, would would want to see. Getting to our next topic, Mike Lindell, Tina Peters, and other Colorado Republican leaders headlined a rally on the Colorado Capitol steps this win on Wednesday this week. Lindell may have added to the long list of problems for Secretary of State candidate Tina Peters by telling reporters that he has donated upwards of $800,000 to her defense fund, which, if true, may violate Colorado constitutional limits for gifts to elected leaders. Dave, there's a lot to unpack here, whether it's the details of the, the gift issue or just the fact that, well, I know the rally was not uh, uh, attended by thousands of people. I think there may have been 100 people tops, but it still becomes part of the news cycle for Republicans. So if you're trying to run on another uh, platform, you keep getting questions about this. Do you think this will have a lasting impact on the situation here in Colorado? Well, in, in that sense, Tina Peters is like uh, Dudley Brown of the scam organization, Rocky Mountain Gun Owners National Association for Gun Rights. If uh, you were a smart Democrat, you would try to give them as much dark money as possible because they're, they're both highly destructive to the Re Republican Party. Uh, but on this, this gift issue, here's, here's what the law says, and Marshall Zellinger didn't quite get it right in his... Uh, uh, too hasty tweet on the topic. The Amendment 29 to the Colorado, Article 29 of the Colorado Constitution prohibits giving, among other things, local government offic elected officials like uh, county uh, clerk gifts of more than $65 in, over the course of the year with certain exceptions. One exception is given by an individual who is a relative or personal friend of the recipient on a special occasion. And actually, the Colorado Independent Ethics Commission has issued an opinion on this particular topic. They, it's uh, advisory opinion number 13-01. It's included in uh, Marion Goodland's excellent article on the topic. And that was a question is, can you give money to a criminal legal defense fund uh, for an individual? And their answer was yes. I mean, that is a special occasion. You know, not every special occasion is a happy occasion. And this is special. Um, and, and so they said you can. And the gift has to come from either a relative or a friend. Doesn't say a personal friend. Doesn't have to be a close friend like Marshall Zellinger thought, but it has to be a friend. And I think Mike Lindell and Tina Peters are, are genuine uh, friends at this point. The advisory opinion also recommended that the uh, uh, recipient defense fund disclose its donors and, and, and so on. Uh, but as uh, Peter's attorney, uh, Scott Gessler, pointed out, even the opinion itself says, well, yeah, but there's nothing in the law that says who you should disclose it to or what kind of, in, in what kind of form. So, and she didn't, she didn't disclose that. Mike Lindell disclosed it. Uh, but that may not be a, uh, a violation yet since there's no real procedure for such disclosure. Eric, I think while, and I really applaud uh, David's breakdown constitutionally, I don't know where else you're going to get, dear viewer, uh, quotations from the advisory opinion 13-01, except for a reporter talking about it and an analyst talking about it here. So on behalf of everybody, you're welcome, Colorado. But uh, Eric, the, the, the longer term impact of rallies like this, even if it's not a big audience, that now the 
uh, all the different candidates in the Senate race, in different primaries for Republicans, in all of their forums, they now get questions, well, what do you think about Tina Peters? What do you think about Mike Lindell? And they want to get to crime and inflation and everything else, but they're still being dragged to this. Does that have staying power for the, uh, those candidates? Sure. It's, it's bedeviling the Colorado Republican Party and other Republican parties, and at least until the primary. And obviously the footage that is accumulated by Democrats and other operatives during the primary season will be used then come the general. I mean, to be clear, if Mike Lindell is handing $800,000 checks to spout off about the last election, count me in and I'll spout off for $800,000. I might even buy one of his crappy pillows for $800,000. But um, be that as it may, this was quite the rally and I'm sure quite the very small uh, crowd assembled. But Heidi Ganahl is a great example of this. Uh, the Colorado Sun in their uh, Friday political wrap-up this morning had another question and answer with Heidi Ganahl where she refuses or is unable or unwilling, whatever their thinking is, to clearly state that you know, President Biden is a legitimate president, whatever you make of him, that he was duly elected. She just cannot get those words out of her mouth and she cannot uh, put any distance between herself and the Tina Peters of the world. I'm planning to go to the state Republican Assembly tomorrow uh, on a media credential uh, down in Colorado Springs. And it is going to be the heyday for the Ron Hanks, Tina Peters, at all, at all wing of that party. It's like we have two Republican parties these days. There's a grown-up adult party, uh, people like Heidi Ganahl, presumably, but we'll see if she can actually step into those shoes. But the Pam Andersons, the Lang Siases, the John Kellners, uh, maybe the Barb Kirkmeyers and others who have every opportunity to do some real damage in this coming election, assuming it is a Republican year. But then you have this whack wing of the party that can't let go of the past, that is enthralled to Donald Trump and will spout every talking point that comes out of Mar-a-Lago, and that is completely looking backwards. And, you know, until they sort this thing out, uh, it's the old John Caldera rule, which is never, you know, never waste an opportunity to shoot yourself in the foot. His description of the Republican Party. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And yes. he said it a little more colorfully than that. <laughs> as, as we can lean on Mr. Caldera to do. Uh, well, we just talked about your great reporting here, Marianne. You were at the rally. You've covered this. You knew about the advisory opinion to quote. What do we need to know about what's going on? Well, the fact that Lindell said I gave Tina Peters three, four, five, eight hundred thousand dollars, he doesn't even know. I I don't know if this is going to rise to the level of adding to the existing complaint. Um, I know Ann Landman, who filed the complaint about the Legal Defense Fund, uh, she's she's looking at whether to file a new one or whether she can add to this one. But his say so alone, I don't think is going to be sufficient um, evidence that that he gave her this money. The other thing that was really interesting, she came out with a statement yesterday that said that said that she did not know Lindell was contributing to her fund, despite the fact that she's been shilling for it on his uh, his programs and on a uh, show that she did with Steve Bannon. She's like, please be sure and give to the Lindell Offense Fund, which is the name of it. That's not the same fund that she had originally. So um, I, this is a really this is going to be really interesting to see what happens in the next couple of weeks and maybe even the next couple of months to figure out just how much did he give and did he actually do it? The guy's frankly, he's a blowhard. He, he could have been making the whole thing up. 
keep waiting for the Baghdad Bob Awards, where it's like, yeah. everything's fine, and tanks are rolling behind us. It's the same thing is happening here. Uh, Patty, beyond this show, probably issuing thank you notes to everybody involved here, gives you know, something fun to talk about. Uh, what do you think will come of the, the kind of circus we've been seeing around this issue? Several more rings of the circus. You've got to love Mike Lindell, because even if she didn't know who was giving money, which seems very doubtful, given what Marianne pointed out, during that very special occasion when she fled the state, when the DA wasn't investigating her. Now, that is a special occasion. I think we'll all agree on that. <laughs> Whose plane did she think she was on? Where did she think she was hiding? You know, she was probably lying on a mattress stuffed with money. We don't know all the details yet, but anytime Mike Lindell comes to the state or gives us something to talk about, I'm happy. Uh, I loved it that someone served him with papers for a lawsuit <laughs> right during his appearance. I don't know if it was related to the Eric Coomer lawsuit. Eric Coomer, formerly of Dominion, also has now sued Mike Lindell. It's nice that he comes to Colorado, gives us something new to talk about. Everyone can talk about it tomorrow at the Republican Assembly when we see just how much the whack ring wing of the party is going to really take power. And we'll see. And then we've got the primary coming up, too. But it, they could really shoot themselves in many different parts of their body if they're not careful. Well, speaking of assemblies and primaries, State Representative Yadira Caraveo was able to secure the Democratic nomination for the 8th Congressional District after her opponent, Chas Tedesco, received only 29% of the vote at the 8th CD Assembly. Caraveo joined State Senator Brittany Peterson, who is in the 7th Congressional District, as the two Democrats who will not face primaries for open congressional seats in Colorado. Eric, we start with you on this one. I have to admit, I had this dead wrong. When, when we found out that both uh, we had a new district and Ed Perlmutter was retiring, I thought, it is going to be open season. It will be a bloody primary. Boy, as a debate producer, I can't wait. And lo and behold, somehow, some way, Pedersen in the 7th District and Caraveo in the 8th District will not even face a primary for an open seat. I can't remember the last time this happened. Uh, is, this a big, is this the kind of big deal that I think it is? Yeah, I think it's a big deal. I mean, I would have been with you, Dominic, if, if we had bet money. I, you know, mm -hmm. who bets that there's no primary for a very open, very competitive seat? The Democratic field is now set. I mean, uh, Democrats are also holding their assembly tomorrow. It's all online. They haven't gotten the memo, apparently, that... Uh, that COVID is in some retreat and you can actually come out of hiding, but it's a non-assembly. And given that they now have their candidates for these two districts and everything on a statewide level from Jared Polis to Michael Bennett down the ticket is just a renomination. Uh, Brittany Peterson and Representative Caraveo, I think, are both strong candidates. Peterson is more likely given that that district has like a six or seven point Democratic lean. We'll see if that lean is enough given the magnitude of what might be a Republican year. Caravea is also a strong candidate. I think there are two huge variables up there. One is who the Republicans nominate. Mm -hmm. Do they go with Lori Sane, who got the top-line designation, came through that assembly process? Or do they go with a Jan Gelhausen, former mayor of, I believe it's Thornton, or, or, Barb, or even more likely a Barb Kirkmeyer, former Weld County Commissioner, current state senator? Um, and and Caravea also has... In, a, in what is ultimately a swing district. I mean, it is a prototypical swing district that is going to say a lot, not just about Colorado, but about the country in terms of how it is going and what the tone of this year is. I mean, she has votes on fentanyl that are certainly going to be coming back uh, to be discussed and, and also on oil and gas, which is obviously the economic driver of that district. It's going to be a very tough race for her. 
Marianne, you've been reporting on all these and the other congressional district assemblies. Uh, what do our viewers need to know about what's going on? Well, uh, and I agree with Eric. Uh, Caraveo is going to have a tough fight. She's got Weld County and Weld County votes and Weld County has grown a lot. And Weld County is largely responsible for the votes that, that created that 8th congressional district or, or for the population growth. So I, I think that will be a tough race. And I, but but money-wise, it looks like it's shaping up between uh, Jan Kuhlman, the Thornton mayor, and Laurie Sane, um, with Barbara Kirkmeyer sort of a fading distant uh, third in terms of in terms of her fundraising. The other place that I have found really interesting is what's going on in the CD3. On the Democratic side, uh, you had uh, as many as 10 people competing for, for the Democratic primary. Now, they whittled that down to just one person who came out of their, their assembly, and that was Saul Sandoval of Pueblo. Um, I think the big surprise was that Don Valdez, a state representative um, who has been working, to, working for this seat for well over a year, uh, didn't didn't make the ballot. Didn't get the 30 percent that's required. Uh, there are two other people who have who petitioned on. So you're going to have a three-way primary down in CD3. The big question is: Is it going? Is there somebody among those three who is going to be a tough competitor for whomever comes out of the Republican primary? Although I think most people think it will be Lauren Boebert, who, by the way, showed up at the state capitol this week. <laughs> Uh, Patty, oh, a, uh, not facing a primary is not a guarantee for um, any of these candidates, but boy, is it an advantage. Is it a significant advantage? I think it is. One is you're not, face, you're not getting bloodied heading into the primary. Mm -hmm. And who knows how bloody the parties are going to get, the different competing candidates. I think in the third congressional district, those guys are ready to fight. So it, that could get pretty ugly. So you're not as bruised. You get to save some money and really focus on November. You don't have to worry about mm -hmm. looking to June. So that makes a difference. I agree that third is going to be really interesting. Saul Sandoval is, a, I think, a really strong candidate. Would love to see her debate Boebert. But uh, Frisch and Walker right? They're both going to be interesting, too. They are colorful characters themselves. So we are just going to have a wild time. But Lori Sane, I mean, if she makes it out and you have Sane in that district, that will be really the most fun to watch. Uh, David, uh, either the Republicans can take heart that iron sharpens iron and they'll have better candidates coming out of a primary, or they fall into what happened to Tom Strickland and you get nailed with something in a primary and it becomes the weapon of your opponent in the general. How do you think it'll go for the Republicans in the 7th and the 8th? Well, it's it's better for the party if somebody gets nailed with it in the primary and then they don't get the, the nomination. And uh, mm. Viewers, if you want to repeat what Representative Pedersen, uh, Senator Pedersen and, and uh, Representative Car Caravaggio did, here are your three key steps. One, be a state official so you can get well-known. Uh, Representative Caraveo beat somebody who was an Adams County commissioner, not as well-known by the, the powers that be in the state. Second, show that you have the ability to raise money and to organize a campaign on your own. Third, you have to be ideologically reliable, not some kind of maverick who will vote for your district's interest when the party leadership wants something different, like on the oil and gas issue for Representative Caravaggio. Then if you do all that, there's a chance that the big power players, the big money, big labor, whatever the, the bigs are in your party, they'll decide to get behind you and coalesce and keep your opponents uh, from making the ballot. It's just that simple. So let's get to our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, we start with you. 
Well, he wasn't at the state capitol because he was busy arguing in court. John Eastman, who would like to keep unaffiliated voters away from being able to participate in the primary, and that could be a real wild card coming up on this primary with more than 40% of Colorado voters eligible to decide if they want to vote Democratic or Republican in the upcoming primary. So he's in court fighting that. He is now having all his email, the district, uh, the January 6th committee wants to get a hold of all his emails. And there's still maybe the threat that CU will get sued for having relieved him of his fabulous duties when he was there telling students how to be responsible. David. The uh, public interest organization Transform Education now did an Open Records Act request, which found that in the Denver public schools, only 5% of black and Latino third graders are even reading at grade, grade level. And for white, white third graders, it's only 30%. This is catastrophic, and it's a set, setting them up for a lifetime uh, of failure. And it just shows you how crazy the Denver Public Schools board is that Tay Anderson is one of the people saying, you know, instead of all this, like, talk about how we're going to make things better for teachers, how about we, talk, we focus on improving the classroom for the kids? Eric. Sadly, here, here to both Patty and, and David's disgrace. Let me go national. The political circus that has become of Supreme Court confirmations in this country. Congratulations to our newest uh, Supreme Court justice, who I believe was sworn in this morning. But if you look back, and this is not ancient history, this is, only goes back a few decades, Antonin Scalia, no shrinking violet, was confirmed with 98 out of 100 votes in the Senate. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, no shrinking violet on the other side, was confirmed with 96 votes. Chief Justice John Roberts got 78 votes. Now it is nothing more than a partisan mud fight, uh, and the court ought to be above that, and we continue to play with fire in this democracy. Marianne. I have to go with Mike Lindell, who has, who showed up here in Colorado and walked away with more trouble than when he showed up. Time to say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty. Uh, Bunport Theater. If you've never been to one of their productions, you must go crazy group out of Colorado College started more than 20 years ago. No one thought it would last. They have their 50th original production opening this weekend. David. On this day in history, April 8, 1996, Colorado, episode, Colorado Inside Out was uh, helped produce, was helped to be produced by an unpaid intern who had quit his paying job just to be an intern at Channel 12. That young man was Dominic DiZutti. And after 26 years, I don't think there's anybody who has done as much to make this show and Channel 12 what they've become. Thank you so much, David. That is that is very, very kind. And it is indeed April 8th. It's a, a, a very fond 26th anniversary. Eric. Dominic Tizzuti, that name rings a bell. Well, yeah. What became of that fine man? Yeah. <laughs> uh, my tie today is in honor of the people of the Ukraine who are suffering through horrendous, uh, barbaric uh, circumstances. They are brave, they are resilient, and they should never, never be far from our mind these days. You're here. Marianne. I want to uh, salute two women who ascended this week. One, obviously, is Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, who won uh, her confirmation to the U.S. Supreme Court. The other is Glor former State Senator Gloria Tanner, who passed away Monday at the age of 78. Uh, or, I'm sorry, 86. Um, I heard someone describe uh, a, a 
woman by the name of Constance Baker Motley as a North Star who shaped a generation. You absolutely can say that about Senator Tanner. I had the honor of, of writing some words about her this week. And you didn't, you couldn't be a politician in Denver and particularly in Northeast Denver without vis visiting Senator Tanner first. Yeah. And I will uh, not only thank David for those very kind words, but it was uh, Miss Barbara Jabaley, the producer and creator of this very show, that took pity on some uh, nobody intern to uh, give him something to do. And I am grateful for that and will be forever. Uh, that is all time for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.